Liverpool Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Ladies and gentlemen, this is another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour coming at you. I have for you an interview with singer and actress Lucy Arnaz. She's had a career spanning 50 years, if you can believe that. Let me tell you, she's a great singer. If you get a chance to listen to her albums, you will probably concur. Lucy Arnaz is the daughter of Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. Like a lot of people, probably many of you, the TV show I Love Lucy is about as good as it gets. I recall it wasn't long ago that Bob Dylan did an interview and he was asked what he watched on his tour bus and he said something like, it's I love Lucy all the time. (laughs) Will you do me a favor and consider sharing this interview on social media? That would be nice. Also, give us a subscribe over on YouTube. You can support the Paul Leslie Hour. Just go on www. ThePaulLeslie.com. Click on support the show. It only takes a moment. I've got a lot of things to do with the Paul Leslie Hour in 2021 and beyond. A lot of goals, so it would be most appreciated. Every little bit helps. Thank you. Let's get into the interview with Lucy Arnes. Ladies and gentlemen, it is our pleasure to welcome a very talented, a very lovely woman. Thank you so much for joining us, Lucy Arnaz. Good morning. Thank you, Paul. I kind of want to go back a little bit. What music do you remember hearing around the house? Well, there were different eras and different houses and different people in them. So when I was a kid, obviously my father played the guitar, and he had the band, and there were recordings of his music, so I do remember a certain amount of the Latin music from the Desi Arnaz Orchestra kind of got into my blood pretty early. And then uh, when I was seven or eight years old, my folks divorced. As you know, my mother married Gary Morton, who was a comedian, who was a stand-up comic, and he opened for the big singers of the day. I mean, he was a a really very funny guy and, and very good friends with people like Lena Horne and Sammy Davis Jr., and Mel Torme, and Stephen Eady. And so he collected their albums like crazy. Gary had the most amazing record collection I ever heard in my life. And he loved to listen to music. If it was up to my mother, there'd never be any music on in the house. She never thought about that. She was busy doing other things, housewife things, I guess. And uh, But Gary would always have music on. And I really got an ear for great songwriters and standards and singers and song stylists. Rosemary Clooney lived right down the block, things like that. It was really sort of American songbook songs. My eclectic taste in songs, I think, is a mix of exactly that, Latin rhythms and great American songs. Can you pick a favorite from early on as far as music goes? How early? You mean when I was really young or when? I guess when you were really young. Like five or seven or nine or ten. I don't think I even knew the names of any bands then. I just listened to music, you know. You don't know bands when you're a kid. As a matter of fact, I probably listened to more musical cast recordings, really, in those days. And I knew singers. But other than the Desi Arnaz Orchestra, I didn't really know there were bands. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I knew there were bands, but I didn't know they had names. And then I grew up, and I was in my teens, and I was already in. Wor- I was working. I was an actress already, and and then you become familiar with. Oh, there's the you know the 
the Count Basie Orchestra, of course. Those are the ones that were behind Sinatra all those years. Or, uh, you know, Harry James and his band I knew because my dad had Harry James and Betty Grable on the I Love Lucy show. So I was like, oh, there's a guy named Harry James and he has a band. And there's Glenn Miller and his orchestra. Oh, sure, okay, now it's all coming back. You just don't pay much attention to it when you're a kid. And Tommy Dorsey, and I, I mostly can remember a ranger's name before I would remember a band leader name. That's what's so funny. When you have a band leader for a husband, for a husband, that was a Freudian slip. For a dad, your mother's husband is a band leader. You're going to hear about who wrote the music. You're going to hear about who arranged it. You're going to hear Nelson Riddle's name a lot. You're going to hear Don Costa's name. You're going to, you know, you're going to hear Marco Rizzo who did the arrangement or John Pickering or, you know, Peter Matz or <laughs> that's the people I was listening and learning about, you know, listening to and learning about. Is there a certain song that you hear that instantly takes you back to your childhood? Yeah, you know, well, I'm not sure if it's just one song, but you know how you have your, like your favorite albums from that era. And I remember there was a, there was a Dean, there was a Dean Martin album that my mother had. I don't even know the name of it now, but I just remember playing. It's a treat to beat your feet on the Mississippi mud. It's a treat to beat your feet on the right. What a dance yeah. do they do? I love listening to Dean Martin. I could listen to Dean Martin all day long. There was something so happy and so joyous about his music. Even when he was singing sort of a romantic, sad love ballad, it was never sad. You could always, you always knew he was smiling while he was singing it. I just love that man. Can you remember your first singing performance? My first singing performance had to be on the Here's Lucy show. Gosh, I'd have to go back and remember which ones they were. You know what? That's a funny bit. I really can't. They're all blurred into one now. It started, well, you know, it was on stage, too. I, I uh, In high school, I auditioned for the first musical I ever auditioned for was Annie Get Your Oklahoma, and I played Ado, Ado Annie in Oklahoma. So probably my first singing performance was I Can't Say No in Oklahoma. I'd have to say that was probably it. Uh, before that, I was lip syncing. <laughs> oh, okay. That's what kids do, you know. You've performed on Broadway a lot. What have the performances on Broadway taught you? You know, it's interesting because the way I was trained was in front of a live audience with a three-camera moving cameras technique where you go from the beginning of the show all the way to the end and you just stop for costume changes or to put new film in the camera. So we were doing little little plays all along. My father actually invented that technique. I always felt like I was in a play, and then I did little plays in my backyard, and then I found a high school that had a great drama department, theater, theater, be on stage, be on stage. So Broadway was just a bigger stage. So really, I guess what you're asking is, you know, what did Broadway teach you about before? What does stage? Broadway is schmodway. You know, Broadway is 3,000 miles long and in everybody's backyard. Broadway is nice, but there are so many great theaters all across the country. They're centralized in New York. They're like, that's, that's, that's sort of like, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere is what they say, but it's it's not actually true anymore. Broadway is actually very commercial right now, and a lot of things don't make it in New York because they don't have the elements to get the, the audience in and to pay the prices that that you have to pay in order to put a show up on Broadway. It's just cost prohibitive. It's insane. But you can go to the most amazing theaters all around the country, not-for-profit theaters, community theaters sometimes, but not-for-profit regional theaters and performing arts centers are doing some magnificent work. And really, it's just about, I guess, being in that field where it's not a film, 
is that you have to be prepared. You have to know your stuff. You must come to the table ready to go. That's what I love about the theater. It's the rehearsal process. It's something I adore. I love going deeper and deeper and deeper and perfecting it and perfecting it, working really hard, long hours, memorizing, going home at night, fixing it, coming back in the next day. And then that curtain goes up and nobody's there to save your butt. It's hmm. just you. There's no editor. There's no fancy schmancy music and stuff that's going to come in later and make your performance look better. No one's going to cut away when you're doing your best look. It's you. It's, you're up there and it's a high wire act. Theater teaches you to be, the, to be ready. You appeared in the musical remake of the film The Jazz Singer, which you co-starred with Neil Diamond in. What was that experience like? It was a great experience, actually, because it was, came straight from the success of their playing our song on Broadway, being cast in that film opposite Neil Diamond and Laurence Olivier. I mean, Neil, who had never done a film before and was approaching this for the first time, but he was this ridiculously huge record star performer and uh, and Laurence Olivier is like the greatest actor that ever lived and to watch the similarities strangely enough of two people performing from completely different backgrounds who virtually approach the problems the same way fear is fear uh, uncertainty is uncertainty how you work with a bad director or a good director fascinating experience to me Plus, I loved working with both of them. Sir Larry, as he allows us to call him, was one of the most gentle human beings. He's such a lovely man to me, and he was very he was very sick during the time we were filming that he had had several bouts with cancer, and this was one of the rougher ones. He was just coming off of some chemotherapy, and he was in such pain during the filming of that and couldn't have been nicer to everyone around him. Most people who are going through that kind of treatment get really cranky. I know friends who have who have been on chemo and stuff, and it, you're so tired all the time that you just want people to leave you alone. And he always had time for the visitors. He always had time for questions. He had time for the photographer. Lovely, lovely man. Who and um, and Neil. Once we got a director who really understood Neil and how to talk to a non-actor, Neil was great. He was just terrified before that. Really. Oh, yeah, because you're not an actor, and you get a director who's intimidated by the fact that you're a big star named Neil Diamond, and even though you're a wonderful director, every time the non-actor Neil says, well, I, I can't do this, I, I mean, you're going to have to change the script, I don't understand, I don't know how to do that, I don't know how to do that, the intimidated director runs off and has the script rewritten, and then they come back with a new script, but isn't it funny, the non-actor performer still doesn't know how to do it, because he's not an actor. So finally, they get rid of the director who kept kowtowing to the non-actor star, who is a very lovely man and who was not hired because he's a good actor. He was hired because he was a phenomenal musician, and that's what they wanted for the part. So they finally got Richard Fleischer to come in, who was a divine director and a lovely man. And the first time that Neil said, I don't know how to do this, he said, I know, but I do. And that's what directors are for. And and said, okay, Neil, we're going to go over here, and then we're going to do that, and taught him how to do it. You don't assume that a non-actor is going to be the actor, do you? You you help them because you hired them. So anyway, it was a very interesting experience all the way around. I loved it. I want to talk about your record, Latin Roots. Mm-hmm. What inspired you to make the album? Oh, my gosh. Well, the funny bit is I had the idea of doing a show called Latin Roots 22 years ago after my father died. I had been on Broadway. I had made films. I was 
it's on television, and my dad died. It's 1986. And I found this cassette. I mean, a lot of this story is in the, the little booklet that comes with the, with the CD. But I found this wonderful cassette, three, three cassettes, a series of my dad's never-before-heard performances from Ciro's, from radio shows back in the 40s. And this was before RCA had put out those lovely CDs we have now. This was 1986. And even though I had heard some of the music when I was a kid around the house or dad playing certain things on the, talk, the guitar, certain music that was on the I Love Lucy show, this was a treasure trove of arrangements and big band sound that I, I had never heard him do before. And I remember driving around in my car and putting the CDs, the, um, the cassettes rather, in and listening to them and just thinking, oh my God, listen to that. Oh, I just want to be him. I want to be in front of a band like that singing arrangements that are this good. At that point, I didn't have a nightclub act. I'd never made a record in my life. I made a, re- I made a record with Wayne Newton once. It was like, but I had never thought about doing that. And I just kind of put it out there in the universe. And I went to talk to the people who were managing me at the time. And I said, I have this idea that maybe I could do some type of a club act, maybe called Latin Roots, and would start with that song that my dad wrote for me called There's a Brand New Baby at Our House, and then I would come out but doing something contemporary with that same arrangement, and we'd do all the songs that I love now and the stuff that I, standards and, and pop stuff and be Lucy Arnaz show, but it starts with my dad's music because that's where my music started. And then as we get toward the end of it, it would become more Latin and it would end with my tribute to him and maybe even do Babalu or something like that. And everybody talked me out of it. It was like, you don't want to do a nightclub. Oh, come on, Lucy, it costs you hundreds of thousands of dollars arrangements and people and bands, and it's the the a-hole of show business. Nobody wants to do that anymore. And I went, yeah, but I do. But I'd like to do that. See, I'd I'd really like to do that. No, you don't. You don't want to do that. It was unbelievable. It was like talking to a wall. And wouldn't you know, within a month, I got an offer to bring a 90-minute show of Irving Berlin because it was his 100th birthday that year, could you bring us 90 minutes of Irving Berlin to Sicily, to Palermo, Sicily, we'll give you something like $30,000. Sounds like a lot to you, but trust me, it isn't anything when you want to put 90 minutes of a show together and arrangements and costumes and things. Bring a band? Are you kidding? It's nothing. And this was 1988. And I said, whose list am I on? How did you even get my phone number? I don't have a nightclub act. And they went, well, no, you were recommended through something. I thought, really? Well, I said, I said yes, and I had just met this amazing arranger named Ron Abel, and I went over to him and I said, hey, do you think you could do this with me? But long story short, we did this show. It was a huge, big hit. We brought it over here. All the people who said you don't want to do a nightclub were begging me to book it. We booked it for a solid year everywhere, Vegas, Atlantic City, Reno, Tahoe, everywhere. I had dancers in the show. It was great. We cut it down. It wasn't 90 minutes anymore. It was like Vegas time, an hour and something. And then it wasn't the 100th birthday of Irving Berlin anymore, so we took some of the Berlin out. We put Gershwin in. We took the 22 years later, I'm still doing a nightclub act. Isn't that amazing? And yes. about, about 14 years ago, I made a CD, and I called it Just In Time, and I used a lot of the arrangements that I had been doing in my show. And immediately after that CD, I got great reviews, and right afterwards I said, okay, okay, now the next CD is going to be called Latin Roots, and we're going to do the exact idea that I had Ten years ago, we're going to do this show. And then life just took a left turn, and I ended up going to London and doing the Witches of Eastwick, and I had two kids in college, and, you know, you just keep postponing it. So 
It didn't happen then. And then last year, I was asked, I had all my dad's charts at the Library of Congress, and I was asked by the 92nd Street Y Lyric and Lyricist show if I might want to take some of my father's arrangements and do a tribute to Latin music based on the music of the Desi Arnaz Orchestra. And all the charts were at the Library of Congress, so I got them to copy all chunks and chunks of this music. And Ron and I put together a show called Babalu, which was a tribute to my dad in Latin music at the 92nd Street Y last January. And I said to Ron, you know what? We're going to have this show in eight months at the 92nd Street Y. If we don't have that Latin root CD we've been talking about for 10 years, for sale in the lobby, we're missing a very good opportunity here. And so we did. Simultaneously with doing the show, we were producing an album. And the CD came out the same weekend that the show was on. And I am so proud of this CD. And it is 22 years in the making. And it's exactly a culmination of how I felt that day in my little car playing the cassette saying, I want to do this. I want to be in front of a band singing those arrangements. And, and now I am. It's just it's uncanny the way it happened. What do you hope the listener gets from the experience of hearing the record? Joy. Absolute, unconditional joy. And the same kind of pathos that I have for the type of music that this is. And it's a lot of my dad's music, but it's also contemporary music with that incredible Latin feel. There's a song on it that my dad wrote, which is one of the prettiest songs I've ever sung called I Love You. There's a song that I wrote with my son, Joe Luckinville, that I love, 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 called The Music in Your Heart, which really is a wonderful song about what happens when people leave this planet and you want to still communicate with them. How do you? I mean, how do you find them? How do you listen to them? Are they still an inspiration to you? Where does it come from? And those were his questions about his grandfather. We wrote that a really lovely song. We did Johnny Angel. We, found a, we did a very eclectic mix of things that fit this this style and they do they all do that combined with Cumbanchero and Babalu with Copa de Vida it's a pretty cool recording and I'm extremely proud could you pick a favorite song from the album not really I just I listed the ones that I think are, are great I mean I, I do I have no I, no I can't <laughs> they're like my children <laughs> I don't have a favorite and I don't have one that I don't like either there, I, I do them all in my show, and as each one comes up, I go, oh, God, I can't wait to sing that again. It was hard to pick only 14 songs or whatever's on there. It's, it was, we had more we wanted to put on there. I thought, that's enough, that's enough. We'll do another CD next time. Tell us about Madeline Stone. Oh, Madeline. I just wrote her a long email. and Madeline was a girlfriend of mine for 31 years. I met her at a party at Bill Boggs' house 100 years ago playing piano, and she handed me her card. She said, I, I, I write music, too. If you're, a, I understand you're a lyricist, and, and you write lyrics sometimes. And I ended up writing a song with her the next morning. We've been friends ever since. She's a Grammy songwriter. She wrote for Tree Music, for Sony Music. She lives in New York, and she's just a terrific talent. We've been writing songs together for quite a while. I have this recording of yours. The song is called, They're Playing Our Song, Hers? Right. Well, that's in the show, in the Broadway show, there's there's two versions. If you've ever seen, I don't think, you, you probably haven't ever seen the Broadway show, they're playing our song. I have not. It's the story of a lyricist and a composer. It's really the story of Marvin Hamlish and Carol Bayer Sager, but as a composer and lyricist who are trying, or their agents put them together to try to work together to have a big hit. She's got the new hits and he's got the, all the awards, but he needs a new hit and she needs to be famous, so they try to get together and work. 
and they have a horrible time doing that because they're so completely different, and they it's a love-hate relationship, and, of course, love wins out. But when they go to this discotheque one night, the, there's music playing, you know, above them, and he starts to sing, oh, they're playing my song, oh, yeah, they're playing my song, when they're playing my song, and he goes crazy and starts singing and dancing, and everybody's looking at you know, and I go, are you kidding me? Did you actually just do that? Do you do that every time they play your songs? And we have this nice little scene. And then one of my songs comes on the radio that they're playing in the club. And I do the same thing. Oh, shh, shh. They're playing my song. Shush, shush. They're playing my song. And when they're playing my song, oh, my God. And that's what it is. And it was the biggest hit from the show. And I still do it in my club act all the time. If I don't do it, if I take it out because I go, oh, that's such a silly little song. And that show was 30 years ago. And who cares? I get such hate mail. I came all the way down here to hear you sing that song, and you're not singing that song. <laughs> it's really funny. So that's what it is. That's my version of they're playing our song from the Broadway show. What about the song, I believe it's called Tropical Trip? That was my father's radio show on CBS just before they did the I Love Lucy show. And he sang There's a Brand New Baby at Our House to me on that show that's it. one night. Yeah, the day I was born, he had to go in the next morning and do his radio show. And he stayed up all night long with Eddie Maxwell, and he told me, open a bottle of champagne or two, and wrote the lyrics and the music to this song called There's a Brand New Baby at Our House. And then he recorded it on the radio the next morning, and he said, so that when she grows up, she'll listen to it, and she'll know that her old man sang, and that there was such a thing called radio. <laughs> and I love that. I still, every time I see that little clip, I put it in the Lucy Desia Home movie and I use it in my show sometimes, and I love I love listening to it because he says at the end, "I hope you're listening, Miss," and I'm still listening. When do you believe an artist or performer is a success? When they're having so much fun doing what they do that they don't want to do anything else. It has nothing wow. to do with with money or fame. I think your success if you absolutely adore what you're doing and you can't wait to get out there and do it again. What is the best thing about being Lucy Arnaz? Oh, what's the best thing? There's so much good stuff about being Lucy Arnaz. There just is. It's a long, long, long laundry list of good things. I guess if I had to put it into one word, I don't think I can, so this has got to be a bad answer because I don't think there is a one, a one short answer, but she's a seeker. Lucy Arnaz is a seeker, and she's always looking for a better way to know how to live life well. And when I say well, I don't mean wealthy. I mean wealthy. I see. I have one more question, and it's very open-ended. Okay. What would you say to anyone who's listening? Oh, be good to yourself. Miss Arnez, I really appreciate you doing this interview. It was my pleasure. It was lovely. What interesting questions. Goodbye.